Today on Tax Justice Warriors, the focus will be on liens, levies, and collection due process. This is a continuation of the topics I am teaching in the tax procedure course at Washburn School of Law. Thank you for tuning in to Tax Justice Warriors. Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt, the director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Kansas Legal Services. As I've been teaching tax procedure at Washburn University School of Law, I have also been going through the topics here on Tax Justice Warriors. And for this week, I am looking at liens, levies, and collection due process. Now, I have covered these topics before on the Tax Justice Warriors podcast in several episodes, especially as I have been involved with the Collection Due Process Summit Initiative. We had different spotlight episodes. So I will look those up and include those in the show notes if you want to do a deeper dive into these topics, but this episode will be a bit of an abbreviated one where I am hitting some of the surface areas of the topics of liens, levies, and collection due process. So if you're wanting to know more, you can certainly look at past episodes. To begin with, I looked at an overview of IRS tax collections, and in the tax collection process, there are several ways that a person can wind up with a deficiency with the IRS. And some of those may be by math error, could be an examination of a tax return that leads to a deficiency assessment. So there could be the taxpayer consenting to that deficiency assessment, or they would not respond. And so by default, that could lead to a notice of deficiency. And one main area is a substitute for return. Now, the substitute for return is that the IRS executes its own return based on information from third-party sources. When a taxpayer fails to file a valid return or files a false or fraudulent tax return. Now, I will point out that a substitute for return is the IRS putting together their own tax return based on information that was reported to them. And so since they do not have the entire picture, whether a person has dependents, if there is a change in marital status, if a person qualifies for credits. So I often would advise people that if there is a substitute for return, that if they have information to file their own tax return, that I would generally advise them to do that because it will often be a better tax return, more favorable findings than what the IRS would do just based off the information they have. For example, they may default to someone having a single filing status when actuality they may qualify for, say, head of household or something like that. Now, certainly, if you have someone who is heading into audit territory, for them to select something like head of household, they certainly should be able to gather the documents to back that up. Now, some other ways there could be an assessment. Like I was saying before, the default on a notice of deficiency 
by consent. Then also there could be a tax court decision saying in whole or in part the amount that was assessed has been decided against the taxpayer, or there could be other court decisions. Now, when taxes are unpaid, IRS collection procedures will begin. The clock starts running on the statute of limitations for collections, and notices will begin. So with notices, there will be the first notice and demand. That is required by statute. There will be second and third letters that come from the IRS the second and third time that the taxpayer is reminded of their debt and the IRS is checking to see if the taxpayer will start making arrangements to begin payment, that those are not required by statute, but IRS Collections is trying to get the taxpayer to comply. And then next, there is the notice of intent to levy, and that is required by statute. So turning at this point, what is the difference between a lien and a levy? So a lien is a collection tool that the IRS may use to secure the government's interest in the taxpayer's property under Internal Revenue Code Section 6321. That a levy is a collection tool that the IRS may use to collect taxes from a third party or by seizing the taxpayer's property under Internal Revenue Code Section 6331. So diving into the federal tax lien, that is a legal claim to taxpayer property, such as real estate, vehicles, or securities. The federal tax lien can also attach to all business property or all rights to business property, including accounts receivable. It attaches to property acquired by the taxpayer after the lien arises. It is effective from the date of the tax assessment. It remains in force until satisfied, so fully paid off, or unenforceable, which would be the collection statute expiration date, the expiration of that 10-year period. Under the federal tax lien, for an individual income tax debt, the threshold is $10,000 owed before the IRS will file that lien. It is filed at the county level. It gives public notice of the IRS debt. It will prevent the taxpayer from liquidating assets without paying on the tax debt. And it establishes priority to other creditors. So for those of you who have gone through law school and dealt with secured transactions, looking at priority claims for creditors, this would tie into that area. The impact on the taxpayer for a federal tax lien is that borrowing from a financial institution can become more difficult, and it may show up on background checks, so there could be a negative impact on gaining employment. The lien will not release until it is satisfied, legally unenforceable. So again, the collection statute expiration date, the 10-year period has expired, or the taxpayer posts a bond with the IRS. Normal processing time for lien release to be received by a county is 30 days from the date it was fully paid. If there are issues, contact the centralized lien unit at one 800 913-6050 from 8 to 5 
your local time. When you are advocating for a taxpayer, some of the options are to fully pay off the amount, to pay off the liability below the $10,000 that if the lien has not been filed yet, having the amount less than $10,000 will mean that the IRS will not file the federal tax lien. Or if they go through the offer and compromise process, then there is the possibility the notice of federal tax lien would not be filed until after the evaluation is over. So that is discretionary with regard to the offer and compromise. Now I am going to turn to levies. For pre-levy notice requirements, there were those statutorily required notices I mentioned. So the notice and demand letter is the the first letter in the series that is required under Internal Revenue Code Section 6303. Then there is the final notice of intent to levy under Internal Revenue Code Section 6331. And then the notice of collection due process rights is under Internal Revenue Code Section 6330. For the types of levies, there is the 668W. This is one time, and it is connected to wages, salary, or other income. 668A is a continuous levy. It goes toward the bank account or merchant account credit card sales. If you have a federal contractor, vendor, or employee, then the federal payment levy program would be connected with them. That could potentially be garnishing on their wages. There is the Office of Personnel Management Retirement, so a federal employee with retirement, or Social Security Benefits, which is a maximum of 15% of a person's Social Security that could be garnished. Now, a levy is prohibited if the taxpayer is in bankruptcy or other court proceedings, collection due process, an installment agreement, offer and compromise, or in the process of innocent spouse relief. Now at this point, I'm going to do a abbreviated overview of collection due process. The main areas of collection due process that I will hit on are notices, appeals, and tax court. So notices, the main notice will give 30 days to request a collection due process hearing after the date of the final notice of intent to levy or the notice of federal tax lien. You use Form 12153 to request a collection due process hearing. If it is timely, it is an appeals hearing with the opportunity for judicial review of results in tax court. If it's untimely, the equivalent hearing with appeals will occur, but there will not be judicial review by the tax court of those results. Now, with the notices stage, you might recall last year there was some controversy with regard to if a taxpayer used the wrong address on the collection due process letter when mailing to the IRS. So there was some confusion with regard to mailing the collection due process letter to the collection due process department versus sending it in to the address the IRS gave with regard to 
making a payment on the account. At the beginning of this year, IRS Council sent out a internal memo that their policy is to accept all of those submissions to the IRS as timely filed, even if it was not strictly the address that they were directing the person to send their collection due process request to within the IRS. So that was a victory for the collection due process summit initiative right there. Now turning to appeals, that one of the things that an appeals officer will be looking for with collection due process is how compliant has the taxpayer been? Have they been filing their tax returns? Have they been paying their quarterly tax payments if they're self-employed? And also, if the revenue officer provides a, or the, the appeals officer provides a 433A, the regular one or for offer and compromise, has the taxpayer filled that out? Have they provided three months worth of the requested documents or, or the requested document paperwork? And then there are options for collection alternatives through collection due process. So the taxpayer may be trying to get into currently not collectible status, may try and do an installment agreement or an offer and compromise. But again, in order to receive one of these alternatives, they need to fill out the requested paperwork in order to be compliant that just requesting it and saying, I have problems in my life and I need a collection alternative, that is not going to cut it if the taxpayer is not filling out the requested paperwork. So certainly prep in advance, gather the documents after the IRS acknowledges receipt of your collection due process request, but before a hearing has been scheduled, work with the taxpayer to, to gather their documents before you are getting a deadline, basically. So if you are needing to reschedule or you think you need more time to gather documents, do that as soon as possible when you have a contact person or you are hearing about the time when when you're going to have a hearing. So if you're wanting to do an offer and compromise, for example, get to preparing that 433A, the OIC version, that the hearing will generally be by phone. There are times that the taxpayer is saying that they want to have a face-to-face -face -face meeting, but the appeals officer generally directs the person to meeting by phone. The IRS does have some video conferencing technology, so perhaps there will be a rise of that in the future. So if you are successful in negotiating with the appeals officer, they will provide a form 12256 to withdraw the CDP or equivalent hearing request. Now in the process, I would suggest that you build the administrative record that if you are going to be submitting a petition to the tax court, the documents that you have submitted to the IRS will be available for review by the tax court. So if you have some kind of communication with the IRS appeals officer and you want to make sure that it gets on the administrative record, 
I would consider sending a follow-up letter to memorialize those verbal communications that if you came to some kind of agreement or there was some reason the taxpayer got certain treatment, then to put that in writing so that it would come before the tax court judge. If you are saying that the taxpayer has financial issues, then certainly gather bank records, utility bills. If they are getting threatened for closure notices, if they are getting threatened for utility shutoffs or have other issues like medical bills are building, then certainly gather that paperwork to prove the case to the appeals officer or the judge. If the taxpayer, you are claiming that they have medical issues, again, gather their medical bills, but gather those medical records to show that they have issues. Don't just say that they do and, and not providing proof with regard to those medical issues. Now, the scope of the hearing with appeals will be limited to legitimate issues like collection alternatives, spousal defenses, by that meaning innocent spouse, or that proper collection actions were taken, and the verification of IRS procedures, so looking at applicable law or administrative procedure. That there will only be limited circumstances when you can actually challenge the liability. Was there actual receipt of the statutory notice of deficiency? Was there proper mailing by the IRS that if there is no issue with regard to the notice of deficiency or the mailing by the IRS, then that would not be challenged in a collection due process hearing. Now, also, prior opportunities to dispute the liability will prevent a challenge in a collection due process hearing, even if the taxpayer did not take advantage of the opportunity. So some examples of prior opportunities are if there were a prior collection due process hearing, if there was a 30-day letter in a non-deficiency case, if there was an audit reconsideration, if an appeals conference was offered after the determination, or if a taxpayer signed a waiver form 870 or 870-AD during the audit or appeal in a deficiency case allowing assessment. Now, following appeals, there is a notice of determination which could allow the taxpayer to petition the tax court if they disagree with the determination. But if they agree, they would sign and submit Form 12257, the Summary Notice of Determination, or there is a decision letter. If there was an equivalent hearing, there is no right to judicial review unless appeals improperly treated it as an equivalent hearing instead of a CDP hearing, which was set out in the tax court case Craig v. Commissioner 119 TC 252 from 2002. Now, turning to tax court, the taxpayer will have 30 days to petition the tax court. There are 90 days if only challenging an innocent spouse denial. The tax court will review liability issues de novo, but other issues for abuse of discretion. Now, there is quite a bit of deference that they give to the IRS, 
And this is what I was saying about submitting all of the paperwork to the IRS that they have requested and building the administrative record. That if the evidence shows that the taxpayer was not providing the documents to the IRS that were requested, most likely the tax court will side with the IRS and grant their motion for summary judgment and dismiss the taxpayer's tax court petition. The tax court will not limit their review to the administrative record and they will allow appeals to supplement that record, but certainly it is worth trying to build up your side of the case in the administrative record when you are working with appeals. Now, a decision by the tax court that the settlement office abused their discretion generally would not allow the tax court to, for example, order that an offer and compromise be accepted. In my research, there was a little bit of creative decisions or orders that the tax court might be able to do, but often the common remedy is to remand the case to appeals for further consideration to fix a specific procedural problem or adequately develop the administrative record. Now, certainly, if the appeals officer was the problem within the original case, that would be an issue for having the case remanded back to that appeals officer. So that would be something to argue in the tax court case if it is being remanded. But there is certainly the possibility that it would go back to the same appeals officer unless there was an argument against it. And it would be up to the judge to hear that argument. Now, certainly, it can be a bit of a loop for the taxpayer when they would be petitioning the tax court and there is remand that if it just keeps going back and forth between tax court and remand and the problem doesn't get fixed, the taxpayer could be stuck in a loop going that way. But hopefully there would be a way of getting assistance so that at some point the process gets fixed and the taxpayer is not just stuck in a loop. And as another tip, I have found that when working with taxpayers who are petitioning the tax court for collection due process, that is certainly worth talking through with them how they were treated by the IRS. Do they feel there was abuse of discretion or are they needing to find some kind of collection alternative, like currently not collectible status. So when dealing with IRS counsel, they are looking on whether to litigate the collection due process issues, whether there was abuse of discretion, and you need to determine whether that is the fix that the taxpayer is looking for when petitioning the tax court that perhaps it is worth just settling the case and working with IRS collections instead, that I would certainly advise you. There are times that you are working with one IRS department at a time, so it is worth keeping in mind, is the person I am working with at this point, so IRS counsel, are they going to be getting me the IRS collections solution that I need? If not, then 
it would be worth finishing things with that specific department so you can move on to the next department who would be able to help you get the taxpayer the solution that you were looking for. So as you know, there is more to IRS liens, levies, and collection due process than I have talked about. I've just kind of scratched the surface, but this is a good introduction. And if you are needing more guidance on these topics, I will list the different episodes with regard to liens, levies, and collection due process that I covered in the past. So hopefully this will assist you in your representation of taxpayers with the coronavirus issues. I hope that you are staying safe. Thank you for tuning in to Tax Justice Warriors, and I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.